0: So we are in the book of Hebrews, and the book of Hebrews is going quickly for us. At least, I think it's going quickly. You may have different different opinions on how quick this series is going. But we're in chapter 6 already. So we've made it through five chapters. And in chapter 6, we have yet another emphasis on being mature believers. So how do you answer that general question, how do you know if someone or something is mature? How do you know someone or something Is mature. And it's not always visible. Just simply because you are older doesn't necessarily mean you're mature, right? Just because, I mean, I I know for myself, I can get awful silly at times. I can become a little bit um, challenging to be with at times because of my silliness. I understand that and I realize that. So just because I may look mature on your, you know, visibly there's no guarantee you're going to get maturity out of me. There is still that 12- or 13-year-old boy that just loves being a boy. As weird and as strange as that sounds for someone who has grown up and has children, it's odd. But so visibly, it's not just clearly apparent that you are mature. How do you tell if someone or something is mature? Well, if you know me at all, you know that I hate raw tomatoes. I have so many childhood issues with raw tomatoes, it's unbelievable. I have story upon story about my mom forcing me to sit at the kitchen table until I finished the single slice of tomato that she put out for me at lunch. I was so determined, I sat all through lunch all through playtime outside, all through dinner, and until bedtime, because I would not eat that single slice of tomato. I was a bit strong-willed. Still am. But I found this beautiful little picture that helps explain how you know a tomato is mature. And it's not always by the skin. You have to cut into it, and if you cut into it too early, you'd still have a green tomato, which I know there's people out there that, actually, if you fry something, I'd probably like it. I bet if you fried it real, like, real crispy, then I would probably eat that fried green tomato. But you've got the breaker tomato, you've got the turning tomato, the pink tomato, the light red tomato, and then, finally, the red ripe tomato. And you only know that because you really can see inside what it's like. You can really see inside if it is mature, if it's not full of worms. Maybe that's my thing. I think every time I'm eating a tomato, there could be the possibility of a worm inside. Yeah, that's actually pretty smart on my behalf to stay away from tomatoes then. But it's only raw tomatoes. Cooked tomatoes, I can eat. Hands down, I love cooked tomatoes. But the raw ones still might have that worm in there. But you have this visual picture that you can see a tomato and determine whether or not it is mature. So in that in mind, I'm going to encourage all of us this morning through Hebrews chapter 6, verse 1 through 3, to be red ripe tomatoes. Is everybody up for that task? Thank you for not laughing at me through this. We're laughing with me through this. So, in Hebrews, chapter 6, verse 1, we have several things happening in these three verses, and we're going to take it part by part. And in the very first section, we have this word and phrase that we've come across multiple times in the book of Hebrews, and all of Scripture, the word, therefore. And the word, therefore, is there to remind us of what happened in the past, chapter 5, and it's going to connect us with something really important as a conclusion, So the writer says, therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrines of Christ and go on to maturity. Now, he's already talked about being stuck in immaturity, already talked about in the last verses of chapter uh, 5, verse 11 through verse 14, this idea of he's dealing with children. And children can't handle the fullness of God's truth because they're stuck in these basic baby little attitudes and these baby uh, little thoughts and these baby little arguments and these baby little steps that he can't get on to the meat of God's word because they are stuck in infancy even if they have claimed that they've walked with God for 30 years. The date of your conversion is irrelevant to the maturity of your conversion. It's irrelevant. Because in order for Christians to mature, you must actively engage in God's word, being part of your life, living it every day, loving it every day, being challenged by it every day, failing to it every day, receiving restoration every day from Christ, and moving on the next day with more strength and more vigor and more commitment. But that happens only if You engage in that battle daily, daily. So he starts out in verse 1, therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrines of Christ and go on to maturity. There, in, in any discipline, any sport, any activity, there is a learning curve. You have to get the basics down. And if you don't have the basics, you will not be able to become accomplished. You will not become mature in that discipline. And let me give you an example. Uh, when I was probably 9, 10 years old, maybe even younger than that, I saw my first Bruce Lee movie. And um, well, I shouldn't just assume. Does anybody here not know who Bruce Lee is? Okay, Whew. thank you. Because I, I, that would have been a whole nother sermon series on uh, why you don't know who Bruce Lee is. So I saw a Bruce Lee movie early on, and I was like, Mom, 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 I want to be like Bruce Lee. I want to do that. I want to do that. And so I just complained and and whined about it to the point where my mom gave in. Not a very good uh, parenting technique, but I think it was healthy. She gave in and said, okay, you need to do something active, uh, so let's go get karate lessons. And I remember this attitude walking into the class. Very first time, I had my white gi on, didn't even know how to tie my belt, and I'm kind of walking in going, I've seen every Bruce Lee movie there is. All right. When do I start getting people? And I just had this kind of like, I, I got it. 10 you know, year old kid in this class of people who are very seasoned martial artists and uh, I have this attitude of I'm gonna be the next Bruce Lee because I've watched his movies and I've practiced enough in my room, spinning around and falling down and getting back up and getting all the bad guys. I thought I'd have no trouble whatsoever being an expert in martial arts. That changed pretty quick. I would say probably within the first five seconds, my attitude completely changed from this kid who thought he knew everything about martial arts because he had seen every Bruce Lee movie multiple times into, oh no, I have to do what? Just stand like this and then like that. And then all these menial basic activities and movements. I remember probably by the end of the third or fourth week, and I was going multiple times a week. I remember around that time I think I might have been dumb enough to ask the question um when are we going to start like uh using the nunchucks and swords and and, and things like that and, and you know like the jumping parts when are we going to get to that and uh I think the instructor obviously he knew kids like me and uh the sensei said you know what um why don't you perfect this punch and I remember going okay I got it a punch. How how hard can that be? Simple maturity. I'll get that done. And so he shows me the punch. I go home, I practice it, and I keep practicing. He goes, next week, next day, nope, not good enough, not good enough, not good enough. And eventually it just went out of my mind that I had to master this single punch. And one day, seven or eight years later, I remember a kid walking into the class that I was teaching. And I remember him thinking that he probably knew everything there was about Bruce Lee and about martial arts. And with great patience that I had learned, I engaged with him and said, well, I think maybe the best thing for you to do is master this one punch. And you would be shocked at how much muscle memory goes into that single punch done that single way for that single style sticks with you For years, because you've mastered the basics. You always fall back on the basics. You always look to the basics. You always have the grounding of the basics. But you do advance. You do change. You do alter it. You do tweak it. You do apply it in different ways all the time. But that initial taught lesson of how to throw that punch goes with you. But you have to advance from there. You can't just simply stay at that one punch, or you miss out on everything else that martial arts has to offer. There is a time, once you have got it down, that you have to advance and go to something different. The author of Hebrews, in a very roundabout way, is saying something very similar. There are a lot of basic things in the Christian life you got to know. You gotta get it down. You have to have a firm understanding of those basic things. But there is a time, once you understand it, you may not have mastered it, but you understand it. And it is part of your fabric that you should not have to be reminded again. You need to pray. You need to meditate upon God's word. You need to love. You need to forgive. You need to witness of your faith. You shouldn't have to be reminded of stuff you teach in a basic beginner's class. And the author of Hebrews is going to show us a few of the basic things. If you have walked with the Lord for any amount of time, I don't care if it's a month or 50 years, these things should be well practiced and known in your life. don't have to know everything about it. But you shouldn't have to be taught again what are these things. And the first principle that we see in leaving these basic things in verse 1 is not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works. Repentance from dead works is basic. Understanding what good works are versus bad works and repentance. Understanding that repentance is a change of heart repentance basically means turning 180 you're going in this direction negatively and you repent which means you turn around and walk a different direction it's an action word it's not just a oh I repent God I'm sorry for that no no no. it's a I'm deeply sorry for that and now I'm changing I'm no longer going to do this and in the book of Ephesians chapter 4 Paul lays out several different ways in which repentance can be seen and it's the stop and start principle. He says, stop being lazy and work. Stop lying and tell the truth. Stop hating and love. Stop ignoring and dedicate yourself. You see, there is a stoption, a stop, <laughs> a stopping and an action. So we stop one thing and we turn and do the opposite. And that idea of repentance is basic to the Christian life. Because when you became a Christian, you did the most awesome repentance there ever is. Turned away from deadness to life. Turned away from hopelessness to hope. Turned away from yourself as God to the Father as God. Turning away from depending upon yourself to depending upon Him and Him alone. So you've already done repentance. You know the idea. You know the concept. And the author just simply says, you need to turn away from dead works. You see, he's speaking to a group of people who are used to engaging in spiritual activities based on how much stuff they do and how well they do it. Do they do this, 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 and this? And do they do it at that time and that time and that time? Are they really good at doing stuff, especially outward symbols of religious life. And the author says, the mature believer leaves those basic things behind and says, of course I don't focus on all the stuff I do and don't do. All the religious things, all those things that make someone say, I'm a good person. At least I don't murder people. At least I don't steal. At least I don't lie. And they get caught up in all the outside activities of what they do and don't, and they don't realize that repentance starts with a change of heart attitude towards God moving into the opposite direction towards God so the basic Christian believer understands repentance and dead works because it doesn't matter how many times you help a homeless person whether you give them a shirt or you give them a meal or you give them something to help them out that day that does not earn you any favor for God. It does not give you a place in heaven that is better than someone else's place. Because in order to help a homeless person, you don't have to be a Christian, do you? Do you have to be a Christian to help a homeless person? Absolutely not. Anyone can help a homeless person by giving them something. But the act of helping doesn't earn you any credit or favor before God. That is what's called a dead work when you try to relate to God based on what I do and don't do. It's based on who you are and your relationship to God, first and foremost, that first step of repentance. So the author says, I don't have to remind you of this. I should not have to preach to you about these things because these should be so ingrained and basic in your life that you can teach others about what repentance is, what dead works is, what genuine faith is. The second thing he brings up In that same verse, verse six, therefore, or verse one of chapter six, therefore let us leave the the elementary doctrines of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God. Faith in God is basic. I don't know what can be more basic than I have to believe God. I mean, in fact, that's what he says. If you want to have eternal life, What must I do? Repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. I need to repent and believe. So I need to have that change in relationship between myself being God and the idol of my life to him being the God of my life, and I need to believe what he says at every step of the process. I need to believe Is everything in Scripture easy to believe? Is it all easy? Is it all like a piece of cake? Is it all like, oh, man, I got this? No, it isn't. It's not all easy to believe. Some of it is hard to even understand, let alone believe. It's hard to believe because these principles that God lays out in his character Go against our human nature. We want to be important. We want to be highlighted. We want to be acknowledged. We want to be served. And God says, it's the opposite. If you want to be first in the kingdom of God, you have to become what? Last. And don't worry about being served. Rather, you are the one who is always called to serve. Don't worry about being thanked and patted on the back all the time for what you do. Instead, you encourage others. It's the opposite of how the world thinks, how the world operates. And so there's no surprise when the world is absolutely confused and befuddled at the Christian who gives of themselves without wanting anything in return. Gives everything away and reaps the benefit of eternal life. It confuses them. It baffles them. It's hard to believe that being first in the kingdom of God, I have to first become a servant. And that's what Jesus modeled to his disciples, this idea of faith in God this way, when he washed the disciples' feet on the night of the Lord's Supper. How? You're the master. You're the one in charge, and you're serving? That is hard to believe. But he calls us to belief. He calls us to faith because I can tell you, there isn't there isn't anything in all of God's word that is not true. There is nothing in God's word that is not right. There's nothing in God's word that is not beautiful. God spoke it. He gave it to us. He. He ingrains it in our heart. It brings it to our memory. He gives it to you in words. He puts it on your phone. It is everywhere. And every bit of it is worthy of our belief. It is good. It is right. And if we're even challenged with that appeal, then I can say it's also absolutely 100% authoritative. But I think first and foremost, it's a matter of, I love the fact that God communicates to us. He could have remained silent. He could have made us guess how to love him. He could have made us guess how to love one another. He could have made us guess all about forgiveness and repentance. He could have made us guess about faith. He could have made us guess about everything. But he loves us so deeply He wanted to take the guesswork out of our spiritual quandary and give us guiding truth in his word. And every bit of it is to be believed. It's hard. It's a process. There's growing maturities. I take on the world's conflict with some of the things Scripture teaches is true. There's conflict, I know. The mature believer sees that conflict and isn't wavered. It doesn't stop them from believing God. The author of Hebrews says that process is basic Christian living, not advanced Christian living, but basic Christian living that you don't have to go back and review. It should be already part of the fabric and character of your life. Do not have to go over it again, that you should have faith in God and that everything he says is good and right and beautiful and authoritative, which means it demands obedience in your life. Demands it. But before he demands it, he says, do you not love it? These are the words of eternal life. Do you not love it? And the believer goes, of course I love it. Well, then let's move on to something more complicated. He says in verse 2, and remember when I said... um, some things in Scripture are kind of hard to understand. We have to believe it, but it doesn't mean that it's easy to understand. Um, here's a bit of that within the same thought section. Verse 2. So, uh, from verse 1, leave these things aside. Don't have to worry about this again. Verse 2, and of instructions about washings. Now, your version may have the word baptism. Don't need More basic teaching about baptisms. Now, in our modern culture, especially in the New Testament church, when we hear the word baptism, we think of the single act of when you have come to faith, you demonstrate your faith by obedience through the act of being physically baptized, dipped, and brought out of water. But there is so much more to baptism and baptisms than just that one act as a New Testament church that we perform. Because all through the Old Testament, including up to John the Baptist, baptisms and washing were part of everyday worship. Because anytime you brought an animal to be sacrificed, okay, here's, a, here's something that I know everybody is aware of. When you cut into raw meat, fresh raw meat, what generally happens? It bleeds, right? There's stuff that comes out that gets all over the counters. You wipe it off, you wash your hands, get rid of it. Blood. Now, it may not be technically blood or plasma, whatever it is, but you know the icky stuff that comes out. When God provided instruction in the Old Testament for sacrifices, they had to, in simple terms, baptize that meat before they put it on the altar. They had to do washings. They had to clean it. It had to be cleansed. So in some sense, I think the author, because everyone who read this at the time, they were Jewish believers, would have understood baptisms doesn't simply stop at the act of baptism in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that Jesus taught. But it had to do with the sprinkling of water, the washing of water, all the rituals of water, all the cleansing of water, all the washing of your hands before you ate and after you ate, before you did work, after you did work. All of those cleansing rituals the author of Hebrews says we should not have to have instructions about all of those ancillary ceremonial aspects of worshiping God. We shouldn't be caught up in it, it should not preoccupy us, we should not be stuck in thinking, well, how do we wash? How do we not wash? What do we do? What do we don't do? And the Pharisees got into tremendous trouble with Jesus on this one matter when one day Jesus was out and about and stopped at a home and had a meal with the home and he had a dinner with sinners. And the Pharisees, of course, were absolutely upset at this and they come to his disciples and say, hey, why, why, why do you guys not follow the law and wash your hands? And that's when Jesus gave the instruction, it's not what goes into a man that defiles them, but what comes out. The washings were just there to point you to a fact that you needed to be cleansed. And it wasn't just physical cleaning of dead works. It was your heart that needed to be cleansed. It was your soul that needed to be mended and washed and made clean of sin. And so the author of Hebrews says, we don't have to go over again. All of those ceremonial aspects of the law which were good and right. We don't have to go over that again. We don't. That's of the past. It's what God accomplished in Christ to fulfill the law's demands of sacrifices. He goes on in verse 2 again to say not only repentance from dead works, faith to God, instructions about washings, but the laying on of hands. There is no reason, according to the author, that we should have to go over that again. It should be basic known knowledge about laying on of hands. If we were first century New Testament Jewish believers, we would have understood that what in the world is he talking about for us today? Is laying on of hands supposed to be another sacrament we're supposed to be doing? Are we supposed to be doing that with each other, laying on of hands? What does that mean? Well, quickly looking at Scripture, you see, especially in the Old Testament, and even the New Testament with Jesus, laying on of hands had a great symbolic gesture of conferring love and authority. In the Old Testament, when you were anointed king, and the word is anointed, you were poured, or oil was poured over your head, and the priest would lay hands on you, praying and dedicating you and your service to God, sort of conferring that authority. And we have times in our culture where I guess if, uh, I guess if you're ever knighted by the Queen of England, they, you know, they kind of touch you with a sword. I, knight, I don't even know what they do, but they, they touch you uh, very gently with the sword. Uh, At least they should. But that conferring authority happens even in the New Testament church. Not because it's magical or there's power in it, but it's symbolically demonstrating when we have new elders in particular, a pastor who's become ordained. You'll notice that the few times that we've done this here, I've done what in that process? I've asked for the other leadership, spiritual leadership of the church to come up And lay hands on them. And that's very common when we pray with someone as well. We'll put our hand on the shoulder and just say, Lord, be with them. Not because it's some kind of magical way of getting power from God, but we're demonstrating that, God, you're the one who is in charge of this. Not me, but you. And I'm asking for you to be the one who blesses in this. I think that is why when Jesus was confronted by his own disciples, when the children were coming to him, and his disciples said, oh, Jesus is too busy, too big of an important person, he can't deal with children, that it specifically says, Jesus laid his hands and blessed the children. I think demonstrating that the authority comes from God upon this person. But the author of Hebrews says, we shouldn't have to be worried about the significance of that, the meaning of it, the application of it, because it should be so basic to the Christian life. We should be over that. Should not have to be instructed again. Then he concludes with two other statements, and we're going to put these two together in verse 2. So, we should go on to maturity, laying aside these basic things of repentance from dead works, faith in God, instruction about washings or baptisms, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and judgment. The resurrection of the dead and judgment. There should be no medial education a believer needs about the resurrection. And your resurrection, the resurrection of everyone, Because it is the heart and soul of the gospel. If Jesus Christ was not raised from the dead, then we are wasting our time right now. We're lying to each other and faking it and filling ourselves with false hope if the resurrection did not take place. It is basic. And the one who does not believe in the resurrection, I would challenge them whether or not they truly had genuine faith in God because you are not believing the very essence of what proves Jesus Christ was the right and perfect sacrifice on the cross the resurrection is not just essential and basic it is one doctrine that symbolizes Encapsulates, makes real hope for when we ourselves will die, that that's not the end. If there's no resurrection, then Paul is right. Then there is no hope. And we are just babbling nonsense of false. Connected with that is judgment, eternal judgment. There should not be a question in the believer's mind that when we die, we are going to face the judgment seat of God. It's clearly in Scripture that there's a day of reckoning. Now, there's a difference in what that day of reckoning is going to look like for the believer and the unbeliever. The believer's going to face that day of judgment. And on our side, we have Jesus, the great high priest, the great judge, the Lord of lords and the king of kings, saying, innocent, I paid the debt. Look, Father, at your accounting book and how much sin is on their account. Zero, because I paid it. I paid it in full. And in fact, if you look at them, you don't see sin. You see what? My righteousness, my perfection, imputed and given to them. Free of charge. And Satan may accuse you and hurl everything at you and say, oh, but remember when they lied. Remember when they didn't pay attention. Remember when they drifted off. Remember when they were immature. Remember when they didn't believe. And he may try to remind the judge, that is God, of all the miserable things in your life, and not one of those accusations will stick. Because Christ says every time, I paid it. 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 And that at that point, (laughs) at that point, I think Jesus will turn to us in some way and say, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. And I think we're going to be baffled at that statement. We're going to go. But I didn't do anything. You did it all. And all of heaven's going to rejoice with all the angelic choirs praising his name and saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. And it will be a moment of triumphant worship for all of creation to enjoy. And then the next believer comes up to trial. And the same thing happens. And all of heaven explodes with worship and praise. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. And we will enjoy the fruits and bounty of eternal life pleasantly next to God's side. But there is also the judgment of the unbeliever. Sometimes hard to believe. Hard to understand. Hard to fathom. That when they are brought before the judgment seat of Christ, judgment seat of God, and the devil starts hurling all these accusations. Look at how they lied. Look at how they deceived. Look at how lazy they were. Look at how they didn't pay attention. Look at how they didn't believe. And everything that the devil will say, probably at that point, will be true. And that person's going to be standing there, absolutely terrified because he has no advocate. There is no one to stand at his defense and say, paid for. I died and paid that debt. Instead, they're going to realize the weight of the sin. Every accusation just becomes heavier to bear and heavier to bear, to where I imagine they're going to be prostrate before God, saying, I can bear no more. And he will say with his rightness and justice, damned. cast them away to an eternity outside of God's comfortable presence, outside of hope, and filled on top of that with miserable, miserable, unbearable pain and suffering forever. And the author of Hebrews says the immature believer is going to struggle with that. But the mature believer has got to get way past that because the Christian life is so much more than just judgment. So much more than where are you going to spend eternity? It starts there, and there's a focus there, but it's so much more than that. It's about building a relationship with the Father. And I want to end and take us home with a passage. Well, we have in uh, verse 3, the ending of it. All of this in conclusion, and this we will do if God permits. What will we do if God permits? We will not worry about, not have to go over yet again and again, as a mature believer, these basic things about repentance, dead works, faith, judgment, heaven, hell, eternity, the resurrection. We shouldn't have to go over these things again baptisms and the laying on of hands. We shouldn't have to focus on that. They're important and they're basic and they're part of who we are, but we need to move beyond that. So what do we move beyond to? Well, that's what the rest of Hebrews is going to talk about, but in part, I think Peter picks up on this in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 17 and 18. And as I close here, I can ask the band to come up to worship. It says, You, therefore, beloved... Peter is talking to the believing church. Knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with air of lawless people and lose your own stability. Now see this connection here. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Amen. You see, growth in that very same phrase, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, protects you from verse 17. How do we get protected from errors of doctrine and errors of practice and errors that filter into or influence us? How do we protect ourselves? It's this message of verse 18, that single message grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ become more and more enamored and infatuated and just celebratory of who Christ is and what he's done enjoy the fact that he's able to bring you before the altar of God and change you and not just a minor change but he changes your eternal destiny
1: Yeah, since See Father's arms are open wide Forgiveness was barred with The precious blood of Jesus Christ Oh, come to the altar The Father's arms are open
0: amen. I'm going to ask you to take a seat. I have a very quick announcement that I need you to be here to hear. Uh, I'm going to have the team go to the front. You know, the, the, we're meeting the team afterwards. So I'm going to have them go out while I'm making this announcement. Uh, it is with bitter sweetness that I have to announce that Laura Vance is moving to full-time Full time grandma, that is. So, for the past 10 plus years, she has served here at the church as our administrative assistant. Um, she's not in here. She's been our office mom pretty much for 10 years. Uh, so, she will be leaving us in about two months to do her full time grandmaing in uh staying here but obviously with her kids and grandkids in denver spending a lot of time with them so that opens up an opportunity for someone else to step in and help lead in the office and so if you have an interest in being that administrative assistant and there's a lot more job title descriptions involved in that See one of the elders or see me, and we will get you a job description. Uh, It is 12 hours a week, Monday through Thursday, 9 to noon. So if that's something that you feel like you can add to your schedule if you don't have a full-time job, please come see one of us, and we will communicate to you all those little details. She's not leaving. She's just stepping into a different full-time role than the role that she's had here at Calvary. Uh, So um, all right. Bye. That's it. See you back there.